whether it is the Bible that is on your app or the Bible that's in your lap, open those up to John chapter 9. We're also going to have the scriptures on the screen. I'll meet you there in a moment. Bob Edens is from Columbia, South Carolina. Here's what's interesting about an eye-opening about, about Bob's uh, life is that he was actually born blind. So for 51 years, Bob felt his way through life. All of life for Bob was uh, just this dark hallway of sounds and, and smells, was never able to see until one day there was a very skilled surgeon who performed a very complicated operation on Bob's eyes. And in the post-op recovery, he gradually recovered his sight. And he began to see for the very first time. And he was interviewed in a, in a post-operative interview. Here's what he had to say. I want you to hear this. I never would have dreamed that yellow is so yellow, he exclaimed. I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow. But red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon and like... I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail, and of course, sunrises and sunsets. And at night, I look at the stars in the sky and the flashing light. You could never know how wonderful everything is. Of course, this is coming from a man who had never seen before. And the whole idea today is that Jesus does for you and I spiritually what this surgeon did for Bob Edens physically. He helps us see. Because when Jesus comes in close and touches the eyes of our heart with His love, with His grace, and with His peace, what happens is our eyes are opened to, to the beauty of repentance. We actually see the, the change that God invites us to, to, to welcome into our lives is beautiful. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but when somebody tells me to change, I'm like, who do you think you are? <laughs> it's because I like being charged, but maybe because you like being charged. We don't like that. But we see our eyes are open to, to the beauty of the church. Our eyes are open to, to the beauty of God's word. Our eyes are open to the beauty of the gospel. I, I share this when I share my testimony of how I went from my heart being blind to my heart seeing is one of the ways that I knew that God had opened my eyes is that I had an appetite for God's Word. And I'd been told to read the Bible my entire life, but at the age of 19, whenever my eyes were open spiritually, there was this desire that was deposited into my heart, and I wanted to read the Word. And I don't know what that is for you, but it goes to show that our eyes are open to God's purposes whenever Jesus comes in close. But the opposite is true. Until the, the surgical touch of Jesus becomes personal for you through faith in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his triumphant resurrection, then what happens, we are blind to true beauty. It's as if those seeing, we can't actually see. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays for, for the church that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. And how do we know when that's happened? Well, we know that has happened when Jesus becomes bigger, better, and more beautiful to us than anything else that this life could, could offer. And that's the, 
That's the main point of 41 verses in John chapter 9. We're not going to have time to read all of these verses. It's a big chapter, but it's actually a really simple chapter. In this chapter, we come to Jesus' sixth great miracle, his sixth great sign in John's gospel, where he restores the sight of a beggar who was born blind. And I like to keep it as simple as I can. So the whole idea of the message today is the closer we get to Jesus, the clearer we see life. And so the reverse of that is true as well. The the farther you get from Jesus, the farther you remain from Jesus, the foggier life is going to seem for you. And I just have a simple question I want to ask. Do you want to see life clearly? Then get close to Jesus. (laughs) You're like, it's that simple? It really is that simple. I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not going to come with cost. I'm just saying it, it really is that simple. And so pick up with me in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. You know the thing that makes suffering so hard? It's when there's no end in sight. Uh, you know, the frequency that suffering comes, that, that hits, that hurts. The intensity of the pain whenever it comes... That, that hits and that hurts, but I'll tell you what just totally leaves you hopeless is when there's no end in sight. What makes suffering so hard? The duration of it. How long is this going to last? And so I, I've walked through this with my dad and his disability, who he was, shared with you guys, he was paralyzed from the neck down for 18 years. That's a long time to not be able to get up and stretch. That's a long time to not be able to, to move a muscle on your own. So for 18 years, and what was so hard about that is it's like, there's no cure for this disability. There's no end in sight. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you have been there. You've had you've loved ones who have suffered in a way where there was no end in, in sight. You know, I've, I've seen that in my life. You've seen that in your life. This blind beggar, that's what he was experiencing in his life, and he was helpless. And, and he was hopeless. And the reason why I spotlight the the duration of suffering is what makes it so hard is because when you step into suffering in life, it makes these encounters in Scripture so much more personal. Because until you can identify, until you can relate on some level to the suffering that we see, what you're going to do is you're just going to approach it intellectually. You're just going to approach it propositionally, and you're going to ask pretty impersonal questions like what the disciples ask in John 9 too. Take a look. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi... Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so I want you to see this. It's not a bad question. It really is. It's actually a very common question that we're going to interact with a little bit. But instead of seeing this, man, this man's condition as personal, as relational, they see it as intellectual. They see it as something to discuss instead of something to do something about. And so basically what happens is they ask what you might call the karma question. And what they needed to be asking was the kingdom question. And let me differentiate between the two for a moment for clarity. The karma question assumes that eventually, in some way or another, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. There is a seed of truth within that principle. However, it's bigger than that. And the the scope of of the Bible's message actually gives you a fuller response than than karma or some Eastern religions or, you know, know, uh, what goes around comes around, kind of some of that just like conventional wisdom. 
There is, there is truth to that, because when you choose to sin, you do choose to suffer. You, you're inviting an entry point for, for Satan to step into your life and, 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 and hurt you and, and do something to you. Uh, but that's whenever we, we choose to go against God's plan. But if you think back to the Old Testament, you may or may not know about this guy named Job. So what happened to Job? He was subjected to a lot of suffering, right? I mean, it's just like, don't want to be, don't, don't be Job. But his friends actually believed that the reason why he was suffering is why? Because, because he did something wrong. Job was a righteous man. It was actually because he did things right that he became a target that Satan wanted to attack. And I want to tell you the same is true for us. But here's why karma falls short of reality. It's because it produces tremendous pride in the people who believe in it. It's like, well, my life is good, your life is bad, I'm better than you. My, my life is good, your life is bad, what, what dumb decision did you make? Or what did you do to invite this into your life? And while on a level, again, that can happen, we can invite suffering into our lives, it just produces a lot of, a lot of pride, and it, and it makes you ask questions like, okay, let's just make this an intellectual issue instead of a compassion issue. But another reason why karma doesn't work is because it's out of step with the human experience. It's like bad things happen to good people. Case in point, Jesus. Good things happen to bad people. You see this all throughout the Psalms. So much of the Psalms are these uh, biblical figures who are lamenting that good things, that the, the feel of favor is, is falling upon bad people. In Psalm 94.3, the psalmist laments, he says, How long, O Lord, are the wicked going to prosper? And if that wasn't a part of the lived experience, then we wouldn't have this saying, nice guys finish when? Last. It's, it's because we, we recognize, we understand, karma actually does not work. Uh, but the disciples asked a karma question, they needed to ask a kingdom question. You see, the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there's three fundamental reasons why suffering comes. And we, we touched on these last week, I want to swipe up on this again, just to hit refresh, because it's right here in, in the text. We're, uh, the disciples are asking this question, we're asking this question. So yes, it is, it is true that, that suffering can enter into our life because we do something sinful or because something sinful is done to us. Something done by us or something done to us that is sinful. But then there's, a, there's also, uh, it can enter into our life because some, we do something senseless. It's, it's like we, uh, we accrue a bunch of debt and we end up becoming enslaved to these things that we felt like we had to have but we actually couldn't afford and uh, it, it leaves us in, in a really difficult place because we weren't thinking through, hey, am I, am I really able to, to cover this? Or maybe it's just like something like texting and driving. It's like, <laughs> that's, that's not a loving thing to do. That's not a very thoughtful thing to do. Or whenever we allow toxic people uh, who poison our ability to get to God, who poison our ability to make good decisions, and it's like whenever you get them, they're like elevators that take you to the basement floor. Like you, let, you get around these toxic people and you actually invite them in and you low-key like it. And, it, and it's like, that's, that's senseless. That's not going to help very much. But then there is this next reason. There's a third reason for suffering. And Jesus wants every one of his disciples to know and embrace this. Okay, what is the work of the Christian life? It's holding intention, mystery, the things that I don't understand, with clarity, the things that I do understand, and doing that from a posture of faith that God cares and that God controls. So Jesus tells us what this third reason is in verse 3. Jesus answered, no, you got it, you got it wrong. Um, you, you have a false premise. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what he's saying right here is that suffering often comes not because of something immediately sinful or senseless that we or even someone else has done, but because of God's sovereign purpose. So that sovereign, that's a big word. Uh, theologians use it to describe that God is in complete control. But God is in, he, he's more than in complete control. He completely cares. And to trust in God's sovereign purpose through suffering is to recognize uh, that God not merely controls, but he also cares. And to be a Christian, it is to have the eyes of your heart open to this mysterious reality that even though life is hard, even though I step into suffering, even though it feels like the bottom is falling out, God controls and God cares, and He is organizing and ordering the events of my life for my good and for His glory when I will pray to Him and trust Him and walk with Him and wait on Him by faith, even when you can't see it, right? So an example of this, parents learn this pretty early, is because whenever you have young kids, even, even infants, is about three months into their life, you take them to the doctor for these immunization shots. You been there? Parents, it's like you take your kid in and the doctor's coming at your precious baby with a needle, a big needle. And there is no way, because the level of comprehension and development between your little infant and you is so vast, there's no way that you could just verbally, like intellectually make them understand that that actually is going to help them later on. But the one thing that you can do is you can come in close and you can be there through the suffering. To be a Christian is to invite Christ close through the suffering when the immunization of suffering is coming to you and you still know that He's there. And you trust that there's a bigger purpose. So take a look and uh, we see already from verses 1 through 3, like how do we get clear on God's sovereign purpose? You get close to Jesus. <laughs> that's how you do it. Take a look at verse 4. We, that's Jesus and his disciples, must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So he's talking about light and darkness, uh, those who see and those who don't see. And so Jesus is playing off this metaphor of those who can see and those who are blind. And so those who see, what Jesus is saying, those who, who see are going to carry out the work of the Father, the very thing that we see Jesus doing. That's the work of the Father. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to serve publicly. I'm going to witness publicly. I'm going to worship publicly. I'm going to give publicly. Your, your faith is personal, but it is not intended to be private. And so the work of the Father is going to happen in the daylight because it's right. What do you bring into the darkness? The things that are wrong that you don't want people to know about. And those who see carry out the work of the Father in public, but those who are blind are in the dark, ashamed of Jesus, opposed to His work, doing things that you would blush if, you, if everybody like actually knew that this was going on. And take a look at verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this is a big claim. Jesus is stirring the pot right here. He's saying, I'm not just in the light, I am the light. A way to think about it is, if you want to see, you must get close to me. He, because Jesus is the source of light. And what Jesus is about to do, he does this with all of his miracles, he's about to signify what happens when you get close to him by literally healing a blind man. So remember, 
John calls these miracles signs. He, doesn't, he actually doesn't even call them miracles. But what is this, the purpose of a sign is to point beyond itself to a greater reality. And so when Jesus restores this man's sight, it is a sign showing us what can happen for all of us who leave sin and look to him by faith. And just like Bob Eden's eyes were open to see the beauty of, of life for the first time, so are our, the eyes of our heart open for the first time to see the beauty of grace, the beauty of repentance, the beauty of the church, the beauty of God's word, the fullness of the gospel. Take a look at verse 6. Having said these things, he, that's Jesus, spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Is God doing something in your life right now that you don't understand? That could be the making of a miracle. Because the disciples probably didn't understand why Jesus was spitting in his hand and, and mixing it with mud. And a lot of the times we don't understand what God's doing, but unless we're willing to press into the mess, we might miss out on a miracle. Keep reading and see what happens. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. So there's a few things that I want to bring out right here. The reason we can get close to Jesus is because Jesus first came close to us. This blind man, he can't even see. You know, no, no concept of where he's going to get his sight. No, no idea that he ever would get his sight. But God, here's what you need to understand, God in Christ comes close to him and initiates the miracle. You need to understand, this is humbling, God is the great initiator. We didn't ask God to create the heavens and the earth. He just did it because out of the overflow of his fullness, he's got so much to give. And he initiates that. We didn't ask God to initiate the Bible and to, to write down literally his love letter, his heart, and pour it out and organize it and order it in a way to where generations can have a relationship with God and can hear from him every single day. We didn't ask God to do that. He just did it. So he initiates in creation. He initiates in revelation. But then he initiates in salvation. We weren't asking God to send his one and only son to die because of us and die instead of us so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to him forever. But it happened. Why did it happen? Because God is the great initiator, and we see that right here. No one who's ever come close to Jesus took the first step. And I want us to see this because when you're blinded by sin, you, you don't see your need for Jesus. And it's signaled in this story even that the man doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. You notice that? Jesus comes close, and he just starts doing a miracle. And I want you to notice it's, it's really messy at first. Miracles are messy, by the way. you got mud and you got saliva. And here's an honest question. How many times do we miss out on a miracle because we're afraid of getting messy? How many times do we miss out on a miracle because we're afraid of getting messy? I mean, imagine if the blind man had like recoursed in disgust, wiped off the mud, said, gross, who do you think you are? Get away from me. And, but did you know that we actually do that any time we reject the church, God's plan A for accomplishing his mission in the world? We said, that's messy. Those people are messy. Those relationships are messy. Openness is messy. Forgiveness is messy. Repentance is messy. I don't want to be around that. Those people, that's what they're about. Come on. Or, or it's like we, we uh, resist, uh, we miss out on the miracles because we don't want to get messy when we resist God's word. Even when it says something, that we may or may not like. You know, there's another telling detail. The, the miracle is not complete until the man gladly cooperates. 
And you see in verse 7, And Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Now, the, it's, it's interesting. The, I, was, I was trying to figure out, what is this about? Why would a pool be called sent? And the reason why this pool is called sent is because there was a source outside the city, a pure source outside the city that was pouring into this pool that those who step into this pool and wash in this pool would not have access to unless the source was pouring in. And Jesus means for us to see the impact of this water as a picture of him. Just as this man is told to wash with water, a water that he never could have accessed on his own, so is Jesus identified as living water poured out of heaven who we never could have accessed on our own. Loved ones, we don't climb up the ladder to get to God. God climbs down the ladder and comes to us by a sheer act of grace. And verse 7 continues, So he went and washed, he cooperates, and then the miracle is completed. He went and washed and came back seeing. So from here you might think, okay, the story's over. Jesus steps in, Jesus heals this man, Jesus shows compassion, Jesus gives us a good moral example, we can stop it right there. But if we were to stop right here, we would actually miss out on the miracle that this story is intended to point our hearts to that can happen for all of us. you got to understand, this story is not about physical blindness. That's just a sign pointing to the story being about spiritual blindness. And the question that we're supposed to ask right here is, okay, Jesus opened the beggar's physical eyes, but will he open the man's spiritual eyes? And you might think, well, who cares about that? I mean, this guy, <laughs> in our just sophisticated, tech-savvy society where like what you see is what you get, it's like, okay, he can see. Now he's good. He can go and do the rest on his own. Uh, you, you may know who Rain Wilson is. Uh, he played Dwight Schrute <laughs> in The Office. Okay, I don't know if we've got any Office fans, but uh, he was recently interviewed uh, about his spirituality. And I don't think Rain is actually uh, a, a Christian, but he's very spiritual. And he said something so profound that puts in perspective why you can't stop with physical healing. You've got to go to spiritual healing. He said this, We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And that's, that says a lot with a little, because it, what, it, what it tells us is that our eternal fundamental being is spiritual, not physical. And so to be blind spiritually is to be blind on the deepest level of our being. And that's why the rest of a long chapter 9 highlights these five conversations that show the beggar getting closer and closer to Jesus spiritually. And here's what you see. The closer he gets to Jesus, the clearer he sees. And within each conversation, we're going to move pretty quickly through these, but within each conversation, we see clues and conflicts. Clues and conflicts on how we can move closer to Jesus. The first conversation is the blind man and his neighbors, and this is verses 8 through, um, 8 through 11. And I'll summarize up front. Basically, it starts with the beggar's neighbors arguing over whether he's the same person who once was blind. And so, like, some said he was, others said he wasn't. The beggar speaks up, and he's like, no, it's me, guys. It, it's me. Uh, but then they then question just how he was healed. In verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus. If you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline or just mentally highlight the man called Jesus. 
The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. So I want you to notice how the beggar admits to receiving his sight, not achieving his sight. He says in verse 11, I received my sight. And here's the clue on getting closer to Jesus. One word, humility. Humility. What is humility? The best definition I've ever heard, I think it's a biblical definition, is humility is knowing and embracing your God-given place. Knowing and embracing your God-given place. And when we connect the dots on what just happened with this healing, and specifically how does Jesus do it, there's no part of this miracle, there's no part of us being created in the image of God, there's no part of God opening our blind eyes that leaves us proud, and here's why. What Jesus just did was an instant replay of how Adam and Eve were created. And let me connect the dots for you. So when he takes the saliva from his mouth, that is a picture of what proceeds from his mouth. How were we created? God said, let there be, by his spoken word. And then in Genesis 2-7, it says that man was formed from the dust of the earth. So Jesus takes the, what proceeds from his mouth, and he takes the dust of the earth, and he brings it together... And oh, by the way, in Eden, what was there that was flowing through it that sustained all of life? It was a great river. And so he takes what comes from his mouth, and the dust of the earth, and he puts it on his eyes and he says, go wash in a river or go wash in a pool. And the man comes back seeing. There is no part about God speaking and God taking us out of the ground and God providing a life-giving water that can possibly leave us proud. It humbles you. And here's the humility. Instead of taking credit and saying, imagine if this blind beggar had done this. Hey, guys, listen, you know, I, I went and I washed in this pool and I started seeing it was awesome. I did it. I did it. But you know, you didn't, you didn't do it. No, this was... This was Jesus opening your eyes, not you opening your eyes. And so what he does is he humbly includes the messy, muddy details that Jesus set in motion to recreate his sight. And in his humility, he called and gives credit to who? The man called Jesus. So he's getting closer to Jesus, and here's how. Because one of the first and best steps on getting closer to Jesus is acknowledging that he's real. And that he deserves all the credit for any good in your life. And he's doing both at this point. He's becoming a Christian. It's what we see. His eyes are being opened. And so when we give Jesus the credit, what happens? It clears our sight. But when we take the credit, it blurs our sight and leaves us blind. And I want to ask you this question. Where are you taking credit for something Jesus actually did? So we went to a birthday party for uh, one of Eleanor's friends yesterday. And before we went, uh, there were a few presents that we were taking and uh, Victoria, who bought the wrapping paper, who brought the wrapping paper, uh, made the gifts possible, brought the scissors, brought the tape, all together so everything necessary to wrap these presents and take it well, like in a well-presented way, is there. And so Eleanor decides she wants to jump in and she wants to help out. Okay, she's like, Mom, can I help? She's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And so after it's wrapped and it looks good, I look at Eleanor and I'm like, girl, that looks good. Who did that? She said, me. 
<laughs> we laugh, but it's like, we, we look to our salvation, we're like, who did that, me? We look to our physical health, and we look like, well, I'm on keto, or I've got a Peloton. It's like, who did that, me? No. <laughs> it's like, we look at our resources, we're like, well, I'm smart, I've got an education, I worked hard, who did that, me? And all the while, uh, James 1.17 says, every good gift comes from the Father above, and Colossians 1.17 says that the only reason that your life has not fallen apart is because Jesus has held it together. And so what happens right here is this man gives the credit, and like this man, you give Jesus the credit, you'll be closer and you'll see clearer. Next conversation, it's the blind man and the Pharisees. This is verses 12 through 17. And what we're supposed to do right here is we're supposed to contrast the man's former blindness with the Pharisees' current blindness. So the irony of the story is that a blind man now sees, and seeing men are yet blind. And we know that there's, there is a form of blindness that's not merely physical. It's the eyes of your heart. It's the eyes of your mind. You just can't see because there's foolishness. There's darkness. Uh, I'll get a couple examples of this. It's like the ninth grader who refuses to apply themselves. Most of us have been there, by the way. Okay, so don't high sight. But that ninth grader who refuses to apply themselves in school, and by the time they turn 18 and they're getting ready to try to get into some bougie college, they realize that I blew my GPA because I didn't apply myself. What happened? You're now seeing. You're now seeing that you're supposed to do those things for a good reason because it's actually setting you up for the future. And the parents of teenagers said, Amen. And here we have uh, other, there's a lot of other examples. It's, it's the person who commits adultery. It's like, I never thought, well, what was this going to happen? Like, well, how is this going to affect my kids? How is this going to affect my, my, my spouse? It's like you, you realize. To realize is to become real. It is to see. And the Pharisees have yet to realize, have yet to see Jesus for who He is. Though they have more degrees than a thermostat, a blind beggar is about to stump them. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened His eyes. And just a little, little Pharisee trivia right here. Making a clay on the Sabbath day was one of the 39 prohibitions that they pulled out of the Jewish Mishnah that told them how to conduct themselves on the Sabbath day. Making clay. The word for mud, Jesus literally uh, heals this man by using clay. It's the same word. It's almost like Jesus is like kind of triggering this controversy because he wants to make this bigger, broader point. In verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Guys, this, this is like nerve-wracking, very intimidating, like make you really anxious. Imagine standing uh, before, uh, and being interrogated in a courtroom. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. I love the simplicity. He doesn't make it complicated. He's like, this is what happened, this is who did it. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, watch this, he is a prophet. He is a prophet. Did you catch that last statement? He's no longer calling him a man. He's now calling him a prophet. That's more than a man. That's a man who is directly from God. So Jesus is on the level of Moses. Jesus is on the level of Elijah. Jesus is on the level of Daniel. 
this is such a, such a big deal. Because it shows us two things. First of all, it shows us that the man's spiritual eyes are opening wide. He says, this man is from God. He's not just a man. He's, he's sent from God. And all the while, the Pharisees' eyes are proving to be blind because while the blind beggar who now sees says he's from God, the Pharisees who claim to see say he's cursed by God. And in this first conversation with his neighbors, what did we see? We saw humility. In this conversation, we see audacity. We see the willingness to risk boldly. I want you to see this. For the beggar to disagree with the Pharisees on any point was insanely audacious. These guys have the power to ruin this man's life all over again by casting him out of the synagogue. And this isn't like, oh, I got upset with some of those church people, so I'm going to another church. That happens all the time. Well, imagine being told you couldn't go to any church anywhere. That you've been like blacklisted. You've been officially canceled. You can't go anywhere. So the Pharisees have the power to cancel him, and that's actually what they're about to do. Knowing that, though, the beggar knows this, he still models audacious confidence in the reality of Jesus working in his life. And I want to tell you, one of the signs that you're closer to Christ is the audacity to risk for the sake of his name. And I want to ask you this question, does your confidence in Jesus deepen or weaken in the face of risk? When you're at work, around the water cooler, or you're around your spiritually unresponsive family, or peers, or neighbors, or golf, or pickleball buddies, how do, how do you do? Where do you go? Well, here, here I want to tell you this. God puts us in these risky conversations for two reasons. To train us and to test us. So he puts us in these conversations to train you to stand firm against the believable lies and attractive idols in our culture. Because when you stand firm in these moments, it's the training ground to show the world that Jesus means more to you than life itself. But it's a testing ground because it tests how much you actually believe the truth of the gospel. And I want to tell you, Coastway, I, for me... I want to be someone who sees Jesus as worthy of any audacious risk. And I hope that you do too. And so the prayer at this point is, Lord, give us humility. Lord, give us audacity. Here's the third conversation. It's the Pharisees and the parents. And I'll summarize this. It's verses 18 through 23. So uh, the Pharisees bring in the parents of the blind beggar and they, they interrogate them. They're like, is he your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How does he now see? We're not sure. Go ask him. <laughs> That's how it goes. And the point of this conversation is not so much to beat up the parents, even though they have a pretty puny, puny example right here, a, a fearful example. We could relate to that if we're being real. But the point is to contrast their fearful response with the beggar's audacious response. And so here, we don't see so much a clue for coming close to Jesus. We see a conflict in coming close to Jesus, and it's the fear of man. These parents care more about the majority opinion than they do standing for truth. You can almost hear them saying, We love you, son. We've shed tears over you throughout the years. We've spent money trying to help you, but we're not ready to give up our cultural acceptance over your risky claims. And here's the question I want to ask you. What theological issues are you afraid to part ways with majority culture over? We've got to stop being afraid, 
church. We believe what we believe about sexuality. And, and we've got to stop feeling weak when we say it. We believe that God's design for human flourishing is one man with one woman in a lifelong, committed, not contractual, but covenantal union. That's, that's God's plan. And you don't say that to beat people up. You don't say that with a megaphone to, to come across as this super judgy person. You just say, God's, God's purpose for flourishing to look like this, and I know that there's a lot of nuances. I know that there's a lot of problems. I know there's a lot of concerns. I know there's a lot of questions. Can we engage with compassion? Can we, can we engage with you recognizing that we're all sexual sinners and we repent of all sexual sin? And I'll, I'll tell you, hey, yeah, that's all of us. It's like, that's never going to be popular. It's always going to be persecuted. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's abortion. Maybe it's, maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's what you do with your time, your talent, and your treasure. But here's what I want to tell you. Fear of man in these areas, in any area, pushes us closer to the culture that Jesus came to cleanse. But it leaves us there without being cleansed while pulling us farther from Christ. So the parents weren't there yet, but this once blind, now bold beggar seems to be heating up. He's, he's about to get brought in again, and he's going to risk it all, he's going to lose it all, and he's going to say, Jesus is worth it. The fourth conversation, the beggar and the Pharisees. Verse 24, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. What they're actually saying is give glory to us. That's what's really being said right here. We know that this man is a sinner. The apex of pride is for you to expect Jesus to repent to you instead of recognizing your need to repent to Jesus. And we see it right here. These men are blind. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And then in verses 26 to 33, they just continue to assail him with questions. And he's undaunted. It's like they don't know what to do with this guy. Can't handle him. And he simplifies it with this, verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, the tomb would not be empty. <laughs> There's a way to think about that. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? We know they lost the argument because now they resort to personal attack. They no longer have any logic. It's just pure rage and emotion. And so they're going to punish this guy with and abuse their power. And it says, and they cast him out. So far, we've seen humility. I received my sight, he tells his neighbors. Then we see audacity. This man is from God. And he challenges the Pharisees. Add to that testimony. Once blind, now I see. And I want to encourage you, even if you've got professors, even if you've got scientists, even if you've got doctors, even if you've got the intellectual force of the host culture coming at you, critiquing you, condemning you, tearing you down, for the sake of the gospel, your testimony beats a bad argument every day. Well, you guys know some things that I don't. 
It's like, okay, here's what you did. You, you took the first five books of the Bible. You can memorize it, but you've not seen it. You have eyes, but you can't see. And what he's, what he's saying right here is that you know some things that I don't, but I know the one thing that it takes that you don't. I once was blind, but now I see. And the question that this brings up is, are you sharing your testimony? And of course you're not going to share it if you're the hero of it. Because that's not a testimony, that's a biography. There's a very big difference. But this beggar had a past, and he knew it, and there was no question what his life was like before Jesus came in close. It's like, I once was a blind beggar, but now I'm a bold seer. You see, before you can share your testimony, you've got to be clear on the before and after. Can you answer this? What was your life like before Jesus opened your eyes? I had just a really graphic reminder of this this past week. <laughs> I was at the barber shop, and Money Mitch was cutting my hair. That's my barber's name, Money Mitch. And so, music's playing, and it's this explicit rap music that I filled my mind with for over a decade in high school, middle school, high school, college. So, 50 Cent's coming on, Chingy's coming on, T.I.'s coming on, and this is not edited stuff. It's like, all right, get your hair cut while Disco Inferno comes on. That's comfortable. And so, <laughs> what, what hit me was, I know every word to all of these songs. Some of you are like laughing and nodding your head because you're like, yeah, I do too. <laughs> but I didn't see it. I didn't see the way the music glamorized violence. I didn't see the way the music objectified women. I didn't see the way the music idolized possessions and success apart from God. But I once was blind, but now I see. And it's not because I stopped enjoying the music, confessions of a pastor. It's because a greater beauty entered my life and that pushes out the former darkness. What was my life like before Christ? I was a self-absorbed, lying thief who was very confused. And a lot of that music enabled that. But when Jesus opened my eyes, what was your life like after Christ? When Jesus opened my eyes, I've not been perfect, but I've been pursuing and He's filled my life with more joy, more purpose, and more satisfaction than any lesser love ever could provide. Do you have a story like that? And are you sharing that story? That's what this man does right here. And when you start talking like this, it gets you cast out, man. It gets you cast out of your friend circles. It gets you cast out of those, 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 some of those poolside conversations. It gets you cast out with some jobs. It gets you cast out of some invitations. Where do you go when you have nowhere else to turn? You don't have to turn anywhere because Jesus has already turned to you. Take a look at this last conversation. It's the beggar and Jesus. Verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you're like, Son of Man? What, what's, what's the significance of that? How is that a claim to deity? Well, you ought to study your Bible. You ought to know your Bible. And you ought to, there ought to be a hyperlink right there that takes you to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where we see that every nation, 
every language and every people will bow down and ascribe worship to the Son of Man, which is a description of God. Do you believe in the Son of Man? So do you believe in God? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So from here, what's interesting is the beggar's gone. We don't see him again. Doesn't show up again. We imagine he was probably with the band of disciples that followed Jesus, but we don't know. And what's the last thing we see him doing? Worshiping Jesus. That's the last thing that I want to be seen doing. I hope that's the last thing that you want to be seen doing. What does that look like? Well, worshiping Jesus means you get closer to Jesus. And throughout the 41 verses of John 9, we see this beggar getting closer and closer to Jesus. It happens with humility. The man Jesus did it, not me. It happens with audacity. The prophet from God who you are rejecting did it. And it happens through testimony. The Son of Man spoken of in Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days. The Living Creator opened my eyes. And you might think, well, that's great for this guy. Great for this guy, but what about you? The idea is that you get closer to Jesus. And I want you to think about this. What is the difference between a casual relationship with Jesus and a committed relationship with Jesus? And here it is. It's very simple. It's the desire to get closer. It's the desire to get closer. And you're like, well, what, that, what does that look like? Well, I want to tell you, for, for those with that desire... You know, you're here and you're like, what does this practically look like? Um, we've put together uh, just a next steps card, okay? You're going to see this all over. You're going to see it out in the lobby. You're going to see it at the resource table. It's at the tent. And what this does is it details practical ways that you can get closer to Jesus. And it's everything from, hey, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. I'm transferring trust from myself to Him, and I'm ready to follow Him. It's, hey, I'm, I'm curious about baptism, or I'm curious about the next weekender. That's our... That's our membership class, where you come and you explore and we explain what it looks like to be a commissioned member of Coastway Church and to get caught up in this great mission with a bunch of people who want to do the work of Jesus together. It's like I'm curious about community groups. That's where the crowd becomes a community. We gather here in, as, as, a, as a large group on Sundays, but we gather in homes and all over the place throughout the week and we encourage one another in Christ. Or like, hey, I'm curious about serving opportunities. Uh, encouragement. Hey, go find, go get one of these. <laughs> Fill one out, leave it with one of our team members, and that's one of the practical ways that you could get closer to Jesus. And what do you call it when you get closer to Jesus? You call it worship. That's what it is. It's, an act, it's literally an act of worship. But next, you, you want to see life clearly through Jesus. Church, let me tell you this. The, the bifocals of the Christian life are the cross and the resurrection. That's, that's how you see life clearer and clearer is by looking through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. And if you see life through the cross, you'll never grow proud. You can't. It's not possible if you're focused on the cross for you to be focused on yourself and think about how awesome you are. Because Jesus died because of you. Jesus died instead of you. You, you. you can't continue to persist in pride, and you also can't continue to persist in bitterness. What do we all need? We need to humble ourselves, and we probably need to forgive. You look through the cross, but then you see life through the resurrection. It's like you... You can't ultimately despair. Yeah, life's hard. Yeah, things hit and things hurt. But it's like you can't ultimately despair because Jesus has secured and settled a living, irreversible hope 
And it gives us a reason and resource to continue. And that's the living hope of the resurrection. But if you think about it, like this beggar, what did Jesus, what happened to Jesus? Well, Jesus was interrogated as a criminal. His own friends and family would leave him hanging, and he would then ultimately be cast out as a traitor. And why? He didn't do anything wrong. It was to trade places with beggars like you and like me. Because on the cross, Jesus would be blinded with the darkness of our sin so our eyes could be opened to the light of His grace. And on the third day, as the stone was rolled away, the true Sabbath took place where Jesus would bring forever rest and healing by rising again over sin, death, Satan, and hell. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It has been swallowed up in the resurrection. And here's what's great. If you see Jesus doing that for you, then you can come to him as a, ble- as a beggar, like, no problem. I'll give you everything you need. And if you see Jesus doing that for you, you can come to him as blind. I can't see, I'm confused. Some things are just not clear. No problem. And he will be the one who restores your sight. So if you would bow your heads, open your hearts, I want to pray that that could happen for lives today.